0: Okay, Sarah, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Thank you for being here. You know, we've only had a few people representing uh, VC culture on, on the show. So I'm really excited to get get start, uh, started with you here. Before we get too far, deep, could you give us a quick intro on who you are?
1: Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I'm Sarah. I work at Nash. We're a pre-seed and seed stage venture fund. i investing primarily in Canadian founders. We've made around 100 investments to date over over the last four years, and yeah, 30 plus of which have gone on to raise Series As and, and beyond. Invest across all sectors, so flexible in terms of business model, category, and all of that. So we see it all.
0: Great, of course, financial Ventures is, is it's a. Uh known very well in Toronto for those in the innovation industry. But, you know, before tracking that, I would love to dive into your VC journey of how you got into the VC field. Generally, people come one of two ways. They're heavily financed, yeah. interest- involved in finance, undergrad, etc., cetera, and they come in from a finance angle. Or two, people come from a founder angle, tried uh, they try to handle innovation at various stages, and that pushes them more into a support role. For you, where do you stand? What brought you into VC?
1: It's funny, when I first joined venture and I started having a bunch of intro calls with other associates at other funds, everyone would say, oh, I have a really unconventional path into VC. I think a lot of people think they have unconventional paths into VC, but I actually think one of the things that makes venture really exciting is, at at least from like the fund perspective and working with other funds, is that a lot of people who are in venture came from very diverse backgrounds. And so for sure, there's that Of traditional finance background. For me, like my undergrad was in science, and then I did a master's at Queen's in management, innovation, and entrepreneurship, and have operator experience running my own business myself. And then also worked at the Creative Destruction Lab in their artificial intelligence stream. And so that's kind of when I was at CDL, that was the first time that I had the experience of kind of having my hand in multiple different problem sets at once and being able to work with entrepreneurs and feel like I was adding value. To entrepreneurs at the early stages and so yeah i ended up getting connected with the panache team through a mutual friend who i did my master's with and also was familiar with the partners through their involvement at cdl and so i was i guess connected to them in, in a couple of different regards but yeah for me it was a bit of an, an interesting path where i always thought i was going to go into science my background originally was in science and then a couple of like personal entrepreneurial experiences led me to learn more about the startup ecosystem I think from the operator perspective so definitely have that kind of I would say lean more on on that operator side with regards to like my experience and and where I'm kind of able to add value to founders but yeah it's been it's been a really great journey being able to be on the investor side as well and you just learn so much and I I also think having like it's really great to see a lot of VCs having that prior founder experience because I think it helps you like understand that things aren't always going to be glossy and um, fantastic at the early stages. I mean, especially at the early stages. So, so yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think it is an interesting word there. You said you know being an operator, and I find a lot of interest in that in, in that in that language, because generally when you see when you hear about startups, uh, you think about the Steve Jobs visionary, the guy. The person yes. who has the idea that sees, sees the holy mountain that no one else does and can lead us all towards that path. But the, the idea of op, an operator being an, a founder is very different because we used to talk about it almost as a scale. You know, you're either a visionary or an operator. Um, and, and an operator is, sees someone who see, more strategically sees a, a gap in the market, really. generally, having you know, worked in different, uh, in, in different fields or worked in one field very long. Or just happen, by happenstance, come across something and, and, and has something and, 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 and sees it, but cultivates it as uh, strategically rather than this is the answer that's going to save humanity and I'm going right. to dictate my life around going towards that. Coming from an operator mindset of starting a company, was that how you looked at it? You saw a strategic gap and you went for it? Or was it something that you like vocationally wanted to do? Like it's, it's something that drove you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for me and also just what we look for in venture is we want to see founders who are obsessed with the problem that they're solving rather than the solution they're building. And so I think my experience was I had experienced a gap personally in a market where I felt there needed to be a more. Like scalable and um, tech-enabled solution, in my case it was in in the childcare market, and for us at Panache, we're looking for founders who, I mean, similarly are looking at like here is something where I have maybe founder problem fit where the founder themselves have. Gone through a specific experience that's brought to light a problem in the market or a gap in the market where they've said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to fix this problem. And I, I think that it's great to talk to those visionary leaders who say, I've built this great thing. Everyone's going to love it. This is the answer. This is the solution. And I think sometimes there are for sure breakout successes with those kinds of stories. But for the most part, I'd say we tend to lean towards looking for people who have that drive to solve a big problem for a lot of people, whether that means pivoting four or five times. Often it does mean pivoting four or five times. And I I also think a big thing that VCs look for in founders or an important quality of being a founder is just being able to be resilient because the market's going to change, your customer needs are going to change. And so being an operator and kind of rolling up your sleeves and being able to listen to that and pivot your solution to best um, fit the problem is I think what's going to help uh founders win ultimately. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, you spoke a lot about, making founders win and that kind of mentality shift, right? I, f- I find that yeah. people who are on the other side of the coin that have grinded themselves trying to build something are either become jaded, uh, and, and people in a more, um, not a conservative, but more skeptical outlook. It's, it gives you perspective, right? Uh, in, in terms yeah. of, in terms of this person probably struggling with this and makes you more empathetic. but either those kind of, uh, kind of the realms came into play. Uh, For you?
1: I mean, I would say hopefully the Mm -hmm. latter. Maybe I haven't gotten to the point in my career where I'm jaded yet, but I think that, I mean, definitely the latter. I think when you've gone through it yourself, that you start out with a strategy, whether that be like your go to market approach of this Mm -hmm. is the specific path I'm going to pursue to be able to acquire my customers. Like, I, to give a specific example, when I was first starting my business in childcare, I was like, I'm going to print out million flyers for my company. I'm going to put so tons of grill marketing. I'm going to put all these flyers in every mailbox where I see a stroller outside because I think the family is a kid and then they're going to sign up. It's going to be great. And I got zero signups from that and was so deflated and defeated. And then I went through all of these different strategies to kind of experiment with um, my customer acquisition and all of that to ultimately land on the right one. And so now when I talk to founders and say they're in a building a D2C company or a marketplace and they're experimenting with different go-to-market strategies and they're like, oh, I still haven't figured that out. It's like, I can empathize with that experience of testing, needing to do testing and optimizing and all of that. And just, I think when you go through that experience that you just can't have all of the answers at, up upfront at, at all times. And so for sure, I think like it allows you to empathize with people who are at a, a similar stage to, to where you've been yourself.
0: Right. I remember when like Uber was... Just taking off, like it was all over the news. All these Uber-like services came to be. Marketplaces yeah. really took off, and anyone and people saw that as an arbitrage to <laughs> be made. I put in tech wherever there's a supply and demand uh, style business, and these all these Uber-like kind of services come into play. And one of them, of course, was babysitting. Was that was that like a, a inspiration for you? Like uh, what Uber's success? Or or did you like coming from your own perspective of a, as a market need?
1: I wouldn't say Uber. Um, maybe a yes and mm. no, I guess, in that I think platforms like Uber have created an expectation whereby consumers think and can just have things instantly. And so I think for me, it was more so there are really great platforms that exist to be able to Find childcare for a long term scenario where parents kind of have the time to go through and say, you know, platforms where there's tons of profiles and you know, the onus is on the parents to go through and filter and interview them all and figure out who could be like a long term childcare solution. But there wasn't really like a tech enabled, scalable solution for families to say, I have a last minute date night, I have a last minute appointment, or I have to go to this business meeting and I need a babysitter in two hours that's CPR certified, XYZ. And so, yes, I think like in ways the platform was inspired by the Uber model of automatic payments and then you get your receipt, you don't have to pay the babysitter at the door and just certain ways of streamlining the whole experience to make it seamless and less painful for the end user, but generally felt that it was more a response to a lack um, of existing adequate solutions in the market.
0: So, I mean, diving from that, what was your experiences in running this babysitter's sitting service?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So at first it was like tough. Absolutely. It was just, I mean, I spoke about my experience of making all those flyers. What I walked, it was so hot all over <laughs> the city of Toronto, put a flyer in every mailbox for like two weeks straight. And I was like, this is going to be the answer. And then that times 15, where you just think you've landed on something and then you have to iterate and experiment, but it's also just the most fun ever getting to build something and have that ownership and be able to build a brand that you believe in and also just start to see like customers having positive experiences from something you've created, I think is a really incredible experience. Like I remember this dad who was a customer sent me a text that was like, I've been divorced for two years. I haven't been able to find a provider that i trust with my kids to be able to go back and do my yoga for the last 2 years and now that the sitter that i really trust i'm able to do that and add it back into my regular routine and all of that and and so i think it's really great once you start to get that early customer validation and start to feel like you're building something that people really need is it, such a great feeling and yeah and then i mean ultimately i talk about this book and these resources a lot but i don't know if you're familiar with Gabriel Weinberg, the founder of DuckGo, but he wrote this book called Traction, where in it he kind of talks about all of the different customer acquisition ch- channels that you can explore for your business and explains this s- strategy called the bullseye marketing method to getting traction, where basically you have this like outer ring of all of the potential customer acquisition strategies that you might choose to experiment with for your business. Um, and so you, know, you go through this exercise of how might trade shows work for me, how might SEO optimization, XYZ, and that helps to eliminate the biases of what will automatically work for you, like my bias around grill marketing. And then middle ring is what's actually feasible. Say it's COVID and you can't do any in-person stuff. You kind of cross off the, all of those. And then the middle ring is identifying for experiments where you say, um, okay, I'm going to choose four of these customer acquisition channels. I'm going to experiment with them for a couple of weeks and I'm going to test it out and see what works. And so for me, went through that experiment and then kind of landed on two customer acquisition channels that really worked for me, which was um, Google ads and partnering with mom influencers. And so Ended up growing the platform through through those channels to, to 45 child care providers and 50 families. And that kind of was a, a pretty stable growth and and consistent and less time consuming strategy than putting flyers in the sweltering heat up in people's mailboxes.
0: <laughs> I love that. It, it kind of reminds me of, I think, Michelle Romanoff was also uh, went to, I think, Queen's yeah. University. I think you did your, your master's there. And um, yep. she also, her first company, she was right, she, I think Bytopia, she was going on the sidewalks, downtown Toronto and with chalk right in the daily menu item. And she would run around for the lunch and for the, for the lunch rush. And it's like, oh, go to Bitopia and, and get your coupon and stuff like that. So yeah, this idea of definitely guerrilla marketing and putting that kind of sweat behind uh, a tech company in, in terms of marketing is it, super interesting. And just uh, I think I have a few final questions about about your, your venture. And did it start as you being a babysitter first? And then you try to scale that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I was a I was a babysitter all throughout my and a nanny all throughout schooling. Since I was allowed to be left home alone, I was a babysitter. I was like thirteen. Mm-hmm. I was nannying for kids on my street. And then when I was in my undergrad, I was a part-time nanny for three different families. Um, And then when I was in my master's, I ended up having the opportunity to kind of co-run this boutique babysitting business, which is where I kind of identified that I felt there was an opportunity to really scale something in that space. And so, yeah, so I had a number of different experiences kind of in and just honestly have babysat for probably 300 different families (laughs) over the course of the last five to to seven years. And so, so, so yeah, it was kind of born out of personal experience. And and I found that I'd be putting my profile up on all of these Kijiji or random websites and stuff and can just say I'm CPR certified, which I was and police checked and all of that. But then no one was really verifying that. And I was like, I know I'm trustworthy, but as a parent, like doesn't like, it wouldn't feel great to know that nobody's really validating um, this and it's not the promise of platforms like Kijiji or whatever else exists today. But I did feel that there was an opportunity for parents who just, for a solution for parents who just don't have the time to do that and are looking for something a little bit more short term. And so yeah, definitely was born out of my personal experience.
0: That, that's uh, that's good to hear because uh, based off my f- previous reference, to the Uber for everything model that, that kind of really spurred up mm-hmm. after the Uber success, you know, those dog walking services, there are the babysitting services, there's all these different services that kind of uh, popped up around uber kind of model but the issue was they were all focused on scale and i think there was a babysitting version that uh, got in trouble because they weren't actually va- verifying the babysitters oh, it yeah. was it was like it was you're trying to scale so fast they're just yeah. onboarding babysitters and matching people and in, in the states they got in trouble so uh, the, the fact that you took that yeah. time to definitely chase the verification problem that already exists in the industry. I think that, that's really interesting. Cool. Diving a little bit deeper into um, first uh, Creative Destruction Lab and then even into yeah. your master's at Queens, which innovation focus. I'd love to dive deeper into that. How did that transition go into getting into in, into Creative Destruction Lab? And uh, how did that come, th- come through?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I honestly think so. My, maybe I can back up a bit and talk about kind of the journey of why I did my master's and that's kind of how I ended up getting into CDL or, or connected with that. But yeah, so when I was in my undergrad, I started, my friend and I started project. Sorry, I tried to exit my LinkedIn. I'm so sorry that no i like, it's popping off to sign out just now. But anyways, my friend and I started this photojournalism project. It's Deep Humans yeah. of New York. Yeah. So we didn't start that. That would be very <laughs> cool. But uh, we started, uh, we noticed that a bunch of those kinds of pages were popping up in, in different universities all over Canada. And, and there wasn't one uh, in Guelph, which mm. is where we did our undergrad. So we started Humans of Guelph and just, you know, started going up to people, taking their picture with their permission, asking them to go for coffee with us and all of that. And so through that ended up growing the page to 20K people in the community and started to get involved in what existed of, of the startup ecosystem In Guelph. And so through that experience, I think that's what lit the original entrepreneurial fire in me and and made me want to learn more about just entrepreneurship, startup ecosystem, and all of that. And at that point, I was still in my undergrad in in science. And so really just had no, I mean, I didn't, I probably didn't even know the word venture capital, honestly. Like I maybe had watched Shark Tank or something, but I just was not familiar with the terminology, the ecosystem, or any of that. And so went right into my master's out of uh, my undergrad. And then that's when I started to learn more about kind of where all the different players sit in the ecosystem. So startup incubators, accelerators, VCs, all of that, angel investors. And so then when I was just working on my business full time, I also was just kind of immersing myself in the community as best I could. And so I actually had reached out to someone who was the prime stream lead at CDL just for a casual coffee chat. Like They weren't hiring at that point. I just kind of wanted to learn more about what they did. And then I think six or so months later was when um, I had reconnected with them. They mentioned that they were hiring and, and looking for someone to come on as a venture analyst. And so for me, like CDL felt like the perfect marriage of all of my interests in learning about how early stage startups are able to scale, being able to work in science and also just better understand the startup Mm -hmm. ecosystem and so felt like kind of the intersection of all of the things i was really interested in at the time and so yeah ended up joining i had no background in ai but ended up from joining the artificial intelligence stream and yeah just learned so much while i was there we were building out a thesis at the time around ethical ai so essentially model developer tools focused on data privacy and model explainability and addressing algorithmic bias, which actually manifests itself in so mm. many different applications that that we know today. And so went down a very deep kind of reg tech hole where I learned a ton and, and so grateful for that experience. And, and now being at a generalist fund, it's just a totally different Game of I'm not really a specialist, I guess in in a specific hole anymore. Um, more general, and you know, that comes with its own sets of benefits and and challenges. And so, yeah, it's been the, those are kind of the the experiences that led me to to CDL and and then where I am today. I I hope that answers. No, it, your do,
0: it does. Me. I mean, CDL is such a cool a, a, a institution, <laughs> uh, especially with their their focus on like deep tech and. Super, like, you know, left field yeah. moonshot ideas. In, in terms of a master's, this is like a, a master's in innovation almost seems like an oxymoron. They, they always yeah. say, uh, you can't really teach innovation. You can't really teach entrepreneurship. Something you have to do. But then all these university institutions came out with these master's programs. Uh, even yeah. undergrads now, you can do an undergrad in innovation and entrepreneurship. What took you to the point where you've already did a startup life? Why do the uh, uh, master's? And what did you get? So,
1: yeah, so I oh, okay. hadn't started my business until after my masters. The I just kind of had that humans of Guelph experience um from my undergrad. And so for me, I was like I only have a science background. First of all, I want to meet people in the ecosystem. Second of all, I just need to lay the foundation which is exactly what the program did for me, just the foundations of what are the legal implications of starting a business? You have to incorporate, you have to think of trademarking your logo and just all of these different factors. Um, and then like how do you like make a financial model? What needs to be included in that? Just all of the like high level need to knows, kind of like starting a business 101 was actually like extremely helpful for me and just setting the basics. And it it's not like it was a a super deep dive into any of those topics, but it was really helpful in setting the foundation, at least teaching me kind of what I knew I needed to then go out and and discover for myself. And so, yeah, I, I would say it was really helpful. I think certain elements of entrepreneurship can be taught. Honestly, like I there are certain things like if people have tried to do psychometric analyses on founders of you have to have this certain personality archetype, but there are founders who are super agreeable. And then of course yeah. there are founders who are not agreeable whatsoever. And so I I don't think there's necessarily an archetype. I think there are certain threads amongst founders that are similar, like being resilient, being, as I mentioned before, obsessed with a, a problem, sometimes being receptive to to feedback is a good thing, sometimes not. And so I think that there are sometimes threads that, that you'll start to notice. But I do think it's helpful to have like that baseline education of what you kind of need to know from like... A...
0: That's really well put. I think, this, I think the movies like The Social Network threw off a whole yeah. generation of what entrepreneurship is that You have to be a a dropout, a university dropout in order to make it. It's almost like you're saying no to these institutions or like, you're saying no to all the traditional path and you're making your own path. You're striking your own, but there's definitely a lot to ingrain from, especially institutional knowledge. So cool. You, you got your, uh, you got your master's in innovation. He went, started, you want to start up, went into, into the CDL, just diving into the CDL for a bit there. I think, I, I feel like that's like the, one of the ultimate entrepreneur, entrepreneurial playgrounds, right? There's so many cool ideas. Yeah. A lot of them, a lot of the moonshot ideas, some of them deep tech. Uh, you tell, you spoke about being in the, the machine learning, um, stream, uh, any cool companies you want to shout out that you saw coming out of there? You're mm-hmm. like, whoa, this is uh, this is some amazing.
1: Cool companies. Well, yeah, I mean, alt Text. I'm giving a shout out to Alt-Tex. I don't know if you know them. No, Do you know Alt-Tex, no. Okay. We're also investors at Panache. So, of, of course. course, I'm going to shout them out. But they're very cool. They were in the AI stream. They were mm-hmm. in the Matter stream. But basically, they've created a way to convert food waste into a polyester alternative. And okay. so, like, radically kind of changing the game and in climate tech and creating sustainable fashion and all of that. And so just a really cool deep tech science-based innovation in, in the clean tech uh, arena. And, and so really excited about what they're doing. But I mean, yeah, there's so many really cool companies go through CDL. We're also investors in Sanctuary AI, which came out of CDL, and they're creating human-like robots, which is pretty sweet. And so yeah, there's a, a number of really exciting companies that, that we've seen for sure.
0: Yeah, my favorite to follow out of the cdl are all the space companies. So, I mean
1: like Kepler and Yeah.
0: I can't remember I can't remember the ones off the top of my head, but those for me are fantastic. I think CDL is like one of the only incubator networks that exist that like services such like left field, like Moonshot Ideas, like other incubators like want to look at you if you're trying to tackle space. It's like we have no no way to support. Yeah, yeah. perfect. So, I mean, uh, I mean, what a segue over to VC. So how did that conversation come up of getting into VC? Is something that, something that you wanted, thought that the next step in your evolution? Did it come up out of the CDL in, in infrastructure?
1: Yeah, so I think so. So the way it came up was a, a friend of mine who was already working in venture. She heard that Panache was hiring and she knew that I had a specific interest in helping companies that were very early kind of at that three-person team, early identification of product market fit, like just kind of have your MVP. And that was a stage I was working with when I was at CDL. And so when my friend heard Panache was hiring, she was like, the fund that invests in like the earliest companies in Canada is looking to grow their investment team. And I think you should chat with them. And so it it came through her, but for sure, my experience at CDL. I mean, did I want to be a VC? I wanted to be a forensic psychiatrist, and I was an undergrad. And then I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And then I thought a little bit about like where do I fit best in the startup ecosystem. So I I can't say it was like for sure I was born and knew I wanted to work and venture or that it was even like a long term goal of mine. But definitely when I was at definitely when I was at CDL, I started to think seriously about that being a path that I might want to pursue and. Because I enjoyed, I think, the most fun part of it and the most fun part of CDL was just getting to meet so many different founders and learn about just transformational business ideas when they're just in their infancy. And so that was a part of it that I found really exciting when I was at CDL and, and what kind of sparked my interest in, in learning more about venture. Yeah,
0: um, I remember, I think out of CDL, one of my favorite connections that came out of it was uh, John Francis. Yeah. Now- yeah. yeah, John did really open my eyes about venture. Cause from the other point of point of perspective, if you're a, you're forever looking for capital, right? You're looking for resources. And it always seems, especially if you're new, that venture capital has always been given out to those who are already friends of somebody or like, how is that happening? If you're outside of that bubble trying to get in, it's just like, it's like, how are these decisions being made? I don't understand. My idea is great as well. But John had like a very different perspective, a different perspective, how to be, you know, how to support companies. And for him, he was like, I think he's a cardiologist before. And he's talked about companies in a different way. He's yeah, like people come with these great ideas. And then I'm like, okay, why wouldn't I put some capital into it? But then that capital buys me a voice there and I get to play around with this company and build it up that I can call up from a few of my friends and say, Hey, I've made some money for you before. Put some money into this company. I believe in it. I like the founder. And then we'll all come into it together and we'll ideate and see how we can help and do some sales and make some calls. And it says he talks about it. it. It was a fun thing to do, like a project. You you would work on a project car with your with your buddies. You'd walk, work on this business venture together, and I think that type of in, type of, of mentality as investor, of course, uh, angel investor, like is it, like co pilot to your business uh, to your ventures. Ultimately, such a refreshing way way to look at investing. It's, oh, it's just not money, but it's all these extra things that comes with it. And I think that's what a lot of like sure. new uh, entrepreneurs don't really see, they see oh, all these flashy monies we being given around, it's capital to be burned, burn rate and run rates and all those kind of things. But operational support is something that that's huge. And one of the things I really appreciate about financial Ventures is, is, is Patrick Lore, right from before, even like LinkedIn got swarmed by, by the innovation community, he was posting so much content about how, you know, about innovation and what his stats were. And really leading a Canadian voice on, you know, how innovation should really guide it. And so I've been a fan of him and Finanche for a long time. How's that been working under that kind of culture of supporting?
1: Yeah, it's been great. And yeah, Pat's incredible just from his own operator experience at, at iStock Photo and the rest of the team. I think the whole team kind of brings strengths in, in different ways, whether that be from the operator side or from kind of later stage investing helping our our founders get to their a's and beyond i think like one of the things that has been particularly great about just the culture and the fund in general is just the commitment to creating founder synergies within the portfolio like we have such a massive portfolio of 100 companies and so for us like we don't ever want to be the bottleneck in being able to help founders elevate one another. And so there were so many times, like to give a specific example, there have been so many times that we've been on catch-up calls with our founders and they're like, do you have anyone else in the portfolio who is needed to hire for X role? Or have you, do you know anyone who's gone through this specific challenge with customer acquisition or, or whatnot or selling to hospitals or anything like that? And so we have, and and I should shout out our Amazing director of ops, Roxanne, has done just a fantastic job of reducing us as being the bottleneck and facilitating those connections by one thing she's done is created this incredible Slack community where all of our founders are able to connect with one another and support each other on a number of topics, whether it be hiring, fundraising, marketing, et cetera, list goes on and you know, running these fireside chats where founders can connect with one another. And so I think like one of the big values for me in, in working with the fund so far is just learning so much from our founders and being able to witness just all of the exciting things that can come out of our founders being able to chat with one another.
0: Just diving a bit more into, I know you kind of answered this question before with calling out the portfolio companies, but and, and it, if there's any, any different ones you can call out, go for it. But any, any cool companies you met either already portfolio company or, or loved a portfolio company okay. that you would love to shout out?
1: I would love to shout out Spatula, okay. which is our one of our newer investments that I am personally a consumer of. This is not sponsored by Spatula. <laughs> Hi, Ian. if you're But Spatula basically, so what they're doing and why I'm so obsessed with them is I feel like they have really hit the nail on the head with direct-to-consumer food options that are at the intersection of quality, convenient, and low cost because it Basically, what they do is they're a direct to consumer food delivery, frozen food delivery service where you subscribe. You can get three meals delivered a week or kind of whatever cadence works best for you and your family. The meals that are delivered to you are frozen, so it can stay in the, the freezer for as long as you need till it's time to make them. Once they're ready to go, spatula has cooked them to 90%. And so then you just pop it on the pan, add a bit of water, and it's like in less than 10 minutes, you have an incredible restaurant quality like truffle risotto with Parmesan. And so I think it's so incredible because if you think of the other players in the space, which are, of course, great, like Instacart and HelloFresh, all of those guys, like Instacart is great for getting your groceries. You still have to make it. Uber Eats, you... It's not affordable to order Uber Eats every day, even though sometimes I'm guilty of doing that. And then what else is there? And then there's the Freshes, where great experience to learn how to cook, but it's not actually, like your food isn't ready in 10 minutes and it's a ton of cleanup. I was a subscriber for a couple of years. And so I think they've like really been able to actually create something that's both high quality and convenient and not super costly. And they're also partnering with, Like local chefs to create their recipes and so it's like chefs from momofuku and all of these different places around the city that that are top-notch and ian's incredible he used to run strategy for for uber eats canada and so really has a a strong understanding of the space and so yeah definitely would love to to shout out spatula
0: that's awesome i like how you went right there but
1: um yeah you should Love yeah, I, i'm going to yeah
0: that, that looks really you, you definitely <laughs> sure got got them a convert
1: in
0: terms of so in terms of being a generalist fund right and talking about it being a fund structure in, in general generally the, the higher up you are in a fund if you're a general manager or principal you're kind of bogged down in running in the, the firm and what i've noticed a lot is like associates and analysts they're the ones that do a lot of the deal sourcing they bring up cool companies and introduce them to the manager part is it like that do you are you involved in that process
1: i would the partners are definitely very much so involved in, in deal flow. I would say just the general process is like, just because of the sheer number, mm. like I'm meeting with sometimes 50 companies a week. And so because partners are managing deal flow and just like the fund itself, managing LP relationships, portfolio companies, and all of that, the associates and analysts will be kind of the the front people in terms of taking initial calls. And then say of the 50 calls I do a week, maybe a handful of the companies are ones that are ones to escalate based on my opinion and also what I know is the opinion of the firm in terms of the kinds of companies that that we would get really excited about. And that's when you kind of bring the partner in and then they get heavily involved in, in the deal flow process and the screening process from the perspective of diligencing the company. Meeting the founders and their customers and doing references, digging into the market and all of that. So I'd say the partners are definitely involved in deal flow, but more so from the perspective of once there's a company that the associate has already brought to them as being really exciting.
0: Yeah. So speaking of that, I think... um uh, earning your stripes as an associate is like having a company you introduce get funded almost right yeah. I mean, have, have you gone through those that, that that round yet have you been able to earn your
1: i have but it's not ah, yet, so okay <laughs> think-
0: no worries that's cool though how, how do you how does that make you feel like in terms of meeting with all these different companies and finding this gem that's potentially going to get funded how did that process feel for you
1: yeah it's a lot of fun i mean it's we only invest in 0.05 percent i it's not an exact number but a very small percentage of the companies that that we see and so it's definitely exciting once you meet a founder that you're really bullish on and excited about and and then the rest of the team shares mm-hmm. that excitement is a really great feeling and and for me one of the projects i've been kind of spearheading within the firm is around outbound deal sourcing and so lately we've been spending a lot more time rather than kind of relying on referrals which of course we still have great relationships with other funds and and want to make sure to nurture those and share deal flow with one another. We also have been really focused on just building kind of an outbound engine. And so for me, this company that I'm talking about came from LinkedIn Alerts. So I set up alerts on Sales Navigator <laughs> on LinkedIn um, and have basically I'm trying to set it up such that if a founder whispers the word stealth, stealth it's somewhere on their LinkedIn page and they used to work at Tesla, then I want to get a notification about it. So I've <laughs> Tried to kind of maneuver my way around Sales Navigator over the last mm-hmm. couple of months, and and I think we have a good system now for for managing that. Out. That's so network.
0: interesting. I haven't heard of a Sales Navigator being utilized like that yet. I know there's a lot of special tools that that offer these kind of services. We'll scrape the internet and we'll, we'll find you find mm-hmm. UX. How what do you find the real um, skill set here? Is it like setting up tools to you know scrape through all this data and find these analytical points? Is it meeting with people face to face, and then you know, seeing the grit in their eyes? Yeah. Where do you stand in, like, how do you find, uh, you know, that gem?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say the alerts are more so just for creating that top of funnel, making sure that you're seeing everything as early mm. as possible. In terms of finding the gem, I would say for me, it's there's three things that I'm looking for in a deck or when I have a, a first meeting for a founder. One is this founder uniquely positioned to win in this market. So, do they have uh, to our point earlier, founder problem fit, do they have previous entrepreneurial experience? Is their background particularly relevant to the subject? Looking for some case I can make about why this founder is like in the top 1% of people who understand this Mm. domain. And so that's the first question I'm asking. The second, is this a venture scale opportunity? And so back of the napkin math, like what would it take for this company to get to 100 million ARR? Is the market even big enough for that? are they building like another ride sharing app where, for example, like maybe the market is big enough, but the competitive landscape isn't favorable for them. And so that's another question that that I'm asking. And then the third one is just around like, what is their early engagement? And I think that this is something that maybe differs a little bit from perhaps later stage investors, where you have more financial data to analyze. Like we've invested not only pre-revenue, but pre-product in cases. And so sometimes you just don't have all of the data to see from a financial projection perspective to be able to conduct that analysis. And so for us, we'll focus more on whether you have five customers, 50 customers, 50,000. Well, if you have 50,000 customers and you just start a month ago, <laughs> that's probably really good. But regardless of where you kind of are in in that scope, we tend to put a lot of effort and emphasis on what are your early engagement metrics like with um, with those five or 50 customers? How many have turned off the platform? How have you proven that they really need what you're offering and what is your average contract value? All of that. And so really kind of focus on, on those early engagement stats. So I would say those are the three things that I'm looking for. One already kind of connected with a founder, set up an initial meeting, and figured out that at a baseline it's a fit with the fund from a like location and stage mm. perspective. Yeah, those are probably the the main things, but ultimately I think like it just comes down to the founders. Like at any stage, especially pre-seed and seed, it just comes down to the team and is this team uniquely positioned to win? Do they seem resilient? Do they seem like they'll be able to pivot and that they really understand their domain?
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that focus on the team. All right. Mm-hmm. So at this stage, we're wrapping up, but I'd love to get some predictions from you. What does the future of a VC okay. look like? And you don't, you don't have to go too deep into radical change here. But from your perspective, any gaps that you see are being, that are naturally being filled or needs to be filled? And
1: yeah. Um, A couple things. So one is, and and we've been building out a thesis around what we're calling verticalized communities. And so to give a specific example of that, we invested in a company called COBOL. Basically, they are building this essentially masterclass platform for parents and families from trying to conceive through to going back to work when you have an infant. And so what they've done is They've solved the problem of parents typically have to go to all these disparate resources like Facebook groups and in-person classes, um, go to their doctor, go to friends and family to get all of this advice on how to navigate that very complicated and emotionally draining journey at times. And so they've put that all into one platform where they can connect with one another, find community, get expert validated content, and so have really built a vertical community play in a space where people are often having to go to horizontal platforms like Facebook or whatnot to find their people. And so I think building like subscription communities based around a specific need or kind of life stage is something that we've been spending a lot of time focusing on. I mean, of course, we've seen a lot of activity in the Web3 space and everyone's kind of keeping a pulse on on what we think is gonna happen there and as are we. So so we're kind of starting to, to look in that general domain. I also think like clean tech and carbon accounting is a space that we're going to see more and more so, especially with just regulatory changes as of late where companies are having to um, hold themselves accountable and having to release information about their carbon accounting and and offsetting and all of that. So I think those are three categories that, that we're for sure starting to to pay attention to. I love
0: that. And yeah, we, we've heard a lot about uh, communities, uh, definitely. But I love your explanation of how you know, the, the, ver- the term verticalized uh, community building. I think that's really interesting. Sarah, uh, thank you so much for your time and thank you for being here. Uh, I think uh, you gave us a lot of wealth of knowledge and uh, a lot of things to think about.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Next time I'll wear AirPods. I apologize for <laughs> all of my pings in the background, but I am so grateful for you having me Perfect. on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Have a nice day.
0: Disrupt, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by Ravi Ravindran and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Disrupt content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.